Section 6 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 The Struggle in the Council, Part 2. This, then, is the second stage in the history of parties before the actual outbreak of the Wars of the Roses. The third stage is for five years, from 1450 when the Duke of York returned from Ireland, and another period of opposition ensued, namely between him and the Beaufort party again, represented by the Cardinal's nephew, Edmund, Duke of Somerset. In the period between 1440 to 1450, the government made an effort to get rid of the war with France. William de la Pole, 4th Earl of Suffolk, now the chief advocate of peace, had done good service in the French war. Born in 1396, he was the grandson of Michael de la Pole, 1st Earl of Suffolk, the statesman who had died in exile for his devotion to Richard II. William had been in the service of Henry V and had gone through that monarch's French campaigns. During the minority of Henry VI, he had steadily risen in the service. After the death of the Earl of Salisbury before Orléans in 1429, Suffolk had succeeded to the command of the army. He was taken by Joan of Arc at the capture of Jargeau, but was able to ransom himself almost at once and return to the war. In 1431, after sixteen years of campaigning, he returned to England and was called to the Privy Council. He had seen enough of the long-drawn-out war to know how hopeless it was, especially in its financially starved condition. Parliament would never increase the supplies, so he joined the party of the Beauforts. He married Alice, Countess of Salisbury, the widow of his former leader, the Earl of Salisbury, killed before Orléans. Alice's grandmother had been sister to Catherine Swinford, the ancestress of the Beaufort family. After 1440, Suffolk's efforts for peace were gradually consummated. In 1444, he was the chief English representative at the Conference of Tours, where the truce including the marriage of Henry VI with Margaret of Anjou was arranged. The agreement at Tours provided for a secession of hostilities by land and sea for 18 months. This secession was subsequently prolonged till the year 1449. The ceremony of marriage was performed for Henry by proxy at Nancy in 1445. Margaret was niece to the French king, Charles VII, and it was hoped that she would harmonize the discordant interests of the two countries. But Charles VII had only allowed the marriage on the secret understanding that the English should evacuate men. No discussion of this condition previously to its being concluded is mentioned in the minutes of the Privy Council, but it is unlikely that the Council did not contemplate some such condition. As it was intensely unpopular in England, all the ministers were afraid to avow it. Only after a strong military demonstration did the French ultimately obtain the actual session in 1448. Neither Suffolk nor Queen Margaret were likely to be any more popular for this, and the position of Henry VI was too closely bound up with theirs not to suffer with them. Suffolk, who had been made a Marquis by the King in September of 1444, and Edmund Beaufort, Earl of Somerset, were now in the council of Henry VI, along with Queen Margaret, 
who was firm in support of them. The Duke of York was recalled from France in 1445 and appointed to the position of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland in December 1447. The Duke of Gloucester, who of course hated the French marriage, found himself without influence. He was actually in very bad odour with the king and was suspected of having sinister aims on the crown. His wife, Eleanor Cobham, was now in prison, July 1446, in the Isle of Man, under a strong suspicion of having practised black magic against the king. The duke was no longer summoned to the council. Finally, in February 1447, when he came to Bury to attend Parliament there, he was put under arrest to be tried concerning an insurrection which it was reported, without foundation apparently, that he was raising in Wales. When in confinement in Bury, the duke fell sick and died on February 23rd. People said he had been poisoned, and rumour pointed to the machinations of Suffolk. But almost all sudden deaths not due to violence used to be imputed to poison. Gloucester had always been an evil liver, and had known for years that his constitution, never really strong, was ruined and that he might die at any moment. Little more than a month later, April 11th, died the aged Cardinal Henry Beaufort, our velvet hat that covered us from many storms, the last great statesman who was entirely devoted to the House of Lancaster. The king was thus left to the control of Suffolk, Somerset, and the queen. Moreover, he was to lose Suffolk and the French provinces almost at the same time. He had already injured the Duke of York by recalling him from France. His own mind was rapidly becoming unhinged. It was clear to everyone that the fortunes of the crown were in a low state. Richard, Duke of York, had returned to England from France on the conclusion of the truce and marriage of Margaret and Henry VI. After the death of Gloucester, York was heir to the throne, being the great-grandson of Edward III. On his father's side he was descended from Edmund of Langley, Duke of York, the fourth son of Edward III. On the side of his mother, Anne Mortimer, he was descended from Lionel of Antwerp, Duke of Clarence, second son of Edward III. Thus his pedigree was probably better than that of Henry VI. But the Lancastrians had an indisputable parliamentary right to the throne, and Richard seems at this time to have had no intention of disputing the position of Henry VI. But the Beaufort party thought him too powerful a subject to live in England at this crisis of the country's history, so he was appointed to the honourable position of lieutenant of Ireland in order that he might be out of the way. He did not, however, actually go to Ireland till July 1449. The truce with France still continued, and at home the council, under the leadership of Suffolk, continued to carry on the government, not, however, with any great success, for the statutes of livery and maintenance were not properly observed or enforced, and consequently public order was not very good. The Paston letters of the years 1448 to 1450 give ample evidence of the bad state of public security in Norfolk, it is not likely that the peace in other counties was kept any better. The foreign policy which Suffolk had upheld since 1431 was, if possible, to make and keep an honourable peace. The lieutenant in France at this time was Edmund Beaufort, who was created Duke of Somerset in 1448. 
the pay of the English garrisons in Normandy was as usual in arrears, so it was very difficult to keep them in hand and to prevent violence and plundering. The French government had by this time realized that their cause was in the ascendant, and they gladly seized the opportunity to renew the war, when a band of English soldiers made a raid across the Breton frontier in March 1449 and plundered the town of Fougeres. There is no proof that either Somerset or Suffolk was implicated in this ruffianly design, but the captain of the band, an Aragonese mercenary who had previously been made a knight of the garter by Henry VI, called Francis de Surienne and known as L'Aragonois, stated in writing afterwards to the king that he had been authorized to make the attack by both of them. Anyhow, the French were able to make an excellent casus belli out of the incident, especially as Fougeres was not at once restored by the English. Somerset, although in his earlier days he had shown himself to be a good soldier, did nothing to stop the advance of the French arms. On June 24th he capitulated in Caen with 4,000 soldiers. From this time his career lay wholly in England, where after Suffolk's death he became Henry's chief adviser. But before the surrender of Caen and Somerset's return to England, Suffolk had already met his death. From the very first he had known that the truce with France and the French marriage would be unpopular with a parliament which was infatuated with the French war, although it would not pay for it. It is to his credit that he had risked this unpopularity, because he thought that peace was in the interest of his country. But he took the precaution, before he went on embassy to Tours, to obtain from the king letters patent, dated February 20th, 1444, granting him full pardon and indemnity for any measures he should conclude with France. This was confirmed in Parliament in June 1445 by a petition of the Commons to the King, with the assent of the peers, including the Duke of Gloucester. Suffolk thus had all the advantages of a complete bill of indemnity. But the loss of France was too much for the Parliament to bear, and its anger fell not on Somerset, but on Suffolk, who was looked on as responsible for all the evil by reason of the French marriage and the surrender of Anjou and Men. In January 1450, the commons impeached him of treason before the peers. He was accused of having sold England to Charles VII, that he had conspired to make his own son king, that he had promised to surrender Anjou and Men to the French and had betrayed the secrets of England's resources to Charles VII. Suffolk defended himself successfully and with much dignity. He could have claimed to have been tried by the peers in a complete and open manner, with evidence and witnesses. But such a trial, opening up all the history of the last few years, might have brought the crown and government into an unpleasant light, which might have ended in ruin. So Suffolk submitted himself to the king's mercy, and Henry ordered him to leave the kingdom for five years. Whether Suffolk thought this the safest course for himself, or whether he waived his right to fair trial and went abroad to save the king from the consequences of a general inquiry into the affairs of government during the last years, is uncertain. He quietly settled all his affairs, composed a letter of farewell to his seven-year-old son to read when he grew up, and embarked on April 30th. On May 2nd, his ship was intercepted by another ship which was attached to the service of the constable of the tower and called the Nicholas of the Tower. 
he was beheaded in Dover Road. If the Nicholas had not caught him, there were other ships waiting to do so. Henry VI and his wife were left as it were alone. Of their two great friends and supporters, Suffolk was dead and Somerset was still in Normandy. The other great man of the kingdom, the Duke of York, was in Ireland. It was at this time, June 1450, that one of the crowning weaknesses of the Lancastrian government showed itself, the rebellion of Jack Cade. Already, while the case of the Duke of Suffolk was still going on, there had been riotous assemblies in various parts of the country under a leader who took the name of Bluebeard. These gatherings came to nothing, but that in Kent was much more serious. The leader was an Irishman called Jack Cade, but he took the high-sounding name of John Mortimer and said he was cousin to the Duke of York. People in Kent at this time were afraid that the government intended to devastate the county in punishment for the murder of the Duke of Suffolk, in which Kentish men and ships had been involved. Therefore many men gathered around Cade, and a formal list of complaints was published. These complaints had considerable foundation. They included the high taxation, for taxation was fairly high, although owing to bad finance the government had received little enough money. The exclusion of the Duke of York from the council. He was not mentioned by name, but simply understood among the lords of the royal blood. Interference with the freedom of election to Parliament. Miscarriages of justice, especially in cases affecting the holding of land, and the loss of France through treason. These articles, along with demands for redress, were sent up to Parliament, then sitting at Westminster. It is the duty of a government to consider and redress grievances, but order must be restored first. Henry VI saw this clearly, and although many common people, when called upon to serve, refused to fight against them that labored to amend the common weal, Yet Henry at last got 16,000 men together and marched against the rebels who had got as far as Blackheath. The rebels retired into the wood at Seven Oaks. On the advice of the Queen, a detachment of the royal forces was sent on to Seven Oaks under Sir Humphrey Stafford to clear the rebels out of the wood. But in the first fight, this detachment was entirely defeated and their leader killed. Cade then advanced to Blackheath, from which the royal army had retired. He bore himself so stiffly and so grandly toward the government representatives who came to meet him, namely Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of York, and Humphrey Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, that no agreement could be arranged, and the king thought it wise to retire to the castle of Kenilworth in Warwickshire. Thus the capital of the kingdom, where already the Lancastrian government was not very popular, was practically abandoned to the rebels, except that the tower was still held for the king by its captain, Lord Scales. On July 3rd, Cade marched to London Bridge and cut the ropes by which the middle portion could be raised. He bore himself grandly, being dressed in fine clothes, a brigadine set full of gilt nails, belonging to Sir Humphrey Stafford, who had been killed when in command of the royal army at Sevenoaks. Now is Mortimer lord of the city, he said, striking London stone with his sword. The treasurer of the realm, Baron Say and Seal, on whom the unpopularity of all the taxation fell, was given up to the rebels by the captain of the tower and was beheaded in Cheapside. 
Then the rebels retired to Southwark, feeling themselves safer on the south side of the river. The mayor and chief citizens appealed to the captain of the tower to help them to protect their lives and goods. They saw that Cade's fair promises of good law and security were illusory, and that the rule of a mob meant fearful evils to the peaceful people. So in their troubles the citizens looked to the old soldiers, who were still left in England after the French wars. Lord Scales, one of Bedford's old commanders, harassed the rebels by firing off the artillery in the tower, and at the same time he sent Mortimer Gough, the heroic defender of Le Mans, perhaps the hardest of England's fighters in the French wars, to hold London Bridge. The citizens were organized under this tried soldier, and all the night of July 5th they held the bridge desperately against the rebels till nine o'clock next morning. The civic forces pushed the rebels back to the wooden posts at the south end of the bridge. Then the rebels drove them back again and set fire to the houses on the bridge, so that women and children in their arms could be seen leaping into the river to escape the fire. The rebels pressed over to the north side as far as St. Magnus Corner, but a great rally of citizens forced them back to the southward side. Then truce was made for a day. The city was saved, largely owing to the citizens' own actions, but the valiant soldier Matthew Gough, who had led them, was dead. Sir John Fastolf, in his will, drawn up eight years later, left provision that prayer should be said for the soul of this Gough, who was an old comrade of his in the French wars. Meanwhile, the Chancellor of the Kingdom, Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of York, and William Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester, who, when the king went to Kenilworth, had remained in the tower with the great seal, crossed to Southwark with a general pardon ready drawn up and sealed. They came at a propitious moment for the government, when the rebels were despondent after the fearful and unsuccessful battle of the night before. Most of them gladly accepted the pardon and went off home. Thus Cade was left with the more violent of the rebels, probably the prisoners whom he had released from the Marshalsea and King's Bench prisons. He gathered his plunder together and coolly sent it away on a barge to Rochester. He himself with his band retired by land. He made an effort to gain the castle of Queenborough, but finding the captain staunch and ready to resist, he saw that his cause was ruined. He assumed a disguise and set off apparently alone to the woods about Lewis and Sussex. But the new sheriff of Kent, Alexander Eden, tracked him into a garden at Heathfield near Hastings, and after a fight in which Cade defended himself desperately, made him a prisoner. On the way back to London, the captain of Kent died of his wounds. The rebellion ended, and in the inquiries which followed, the king is said to have behaved mercifully, having only eight men executed where he might justly have had five hundred. This was one of the many local risings in England. It was clear that the administration of the country was breaking down. Even ecclesiastics were not safe. On June 29th, about the same time as Cade's rising, William Askew, Bishop of Salisbury, after he had said Mass at Eddington, was by his own tenants drawn from the altar in his alb with his stole about his neck to the top of a hill, and there by them shamefully murdered and after spoiled to the naked skin. In the same year, only six months after, Adam de Molaine or Molyneux, Bishop of Chichester, keeper of the privy seal, had been murdered by the soldiers at Portsmouth, 
whom he was visiting for no other purpose than to pay them the sums that were due and overdue to them before they went off to Sir Thomas Curiel's expedition to Normandy. The rebellion of Cade would not have been formidable for a moment to a government that was really strong. Indeed, had the government been strong, rebellion would never have been thought of at all. It is probable that in England the outlying counties near the Welsh and Scottish marches had never been quite peaceful and amenable to government. But now all the home counties were in a similar state, with local risings and disorder. At the same time, the last of the English arms were being expelled from Normandy. On August 22, 1450, Cherbourg, the last English stronghold, surrendered. There was a dearth of great or even able men. The root is dead, the swan is gone, the fiery cresset hath lost his light. Therefore England may make great moan, were not the help of God all might. The castle is won, where care begun, the portcullis is laid adown. E closed we have our velvet hat, that covered us from many storms brown. The boar is far into the west, that should us help with shield and spear. The falcon fleeth, and hath no rest, till he wit where to big his nest. These beautiful verses were evidently written by a partisan of the Duke of York. It was not merely the rebels of Kent who felt that the country needed him back from Ireland. His achievements in France and in Ireland had not been brilliant, but they had shown eminent qualities, firmness, and a sound capacity for administration. He had always been quiet and self-restrained. The confidence which people felt in him was not due to any form of self-advertisement. Whatever work had been given to him, he had done well. He had behaved with dignity when the government ministers had plainly shown their dislike to him, and he had the gift of silence. But he could also act decisively, and now he saw that the time for him had come. Sometime early in September 1450, he crossed from Ireland to Wales. About the same time, before September 11th, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, arrived in England, having lost the whole of Normandy, of which he had been the king's lieutenant. Henry was faced with a problem. Would he rule through Somerset or through York? End of section 6